this morning I'm, I'm going to try and um, pull together many of the threads that we have been exploring in the talks over the last days. And in particular, I want to see how these ideas or this way of considering uh, the Buddha's teaching would translate into ways of life, both individually, in other words, concerning ourself, and communally in terms of our society. In other words, to take what so far have been rather philosophical um, uh, ideas and to consider their applications in the wider world that we share with one another. And first, I'd like to look at this idea of self. Um, understandably, the word anatta, not self, has often been taken uh, to imply that there is no self. And um, this, I feel, has given rise to all sorts of problems. But I don't think that that's actually what the Buddha meant at all, that there is no self. Let me give you a couple of examples um, from the early text to illustrate this point. The first is found in a dialogue with the wanderer Vachagota. This fellow Vachagota appears in a number of passages in the Pali Canon, and he's kind of a foil to the Buddha. His questions often provoke a very um, fascinating response from the Buddha. And on one occasion, Vachagota goes up to the Buddha and he says, uh, Reverend Gautama, um, is there a self? And the Buddha remains silent. And then Vachagota says, well then, venerable Gautama, there is no self. And the Buddha remains silent. Then Vachagota stands up and goes away. Understandably. <laughs> Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, then turns to the Buddha and says, well, why didn't you give him an answer? And the Buddha said, well, if I had said to him that there was a self, then he would have lapsed into the extreme of eternalism. But if I had said to him there is no self, he would have lapsed into the other extreme, that of nihilism. So we can see, again, a deeper application of the principle of the middle way a middle way between the extremes of self in the sense of the kind of self spoken of in Vedanta or the Upanishads, an eternal, transcendent, uh, knowing subject identical to God, or the other extreme that might be assumed would follow should one get rid of that notion of self, the Vedantic notion of self, that there is just no one at all an absence of any identity whatsoever, a complete collapse of any sense of personhood or individuality. No basis then for moral responsibility, for example. 
So although in this particular example, the Buddha doesn't affirmatively say what he means by what a self is, he's pointing to how the, de- the, the, the whole idea is fraught with danger. We can slip into denial or over-affirmation and in both ways miss what in fact is going on. So what is going on? What the Buddha, I feel, is pointing to is what we might call, paradoxically, a selfless self, which is not too dissimilar to what we spoke of earlier as a groundless ground. Let me give you another passage. This is from the Dhammapada, which is one of the earliest verse collections of teachings attributed to the Buddha. I think it's verse number 80. I don't have a copy to hand. I'm reciting it from memory. The Buddha says, just as a farmer irrigates his fields, just as an arrowsmith fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, attanam dhammati pandita, the wise person tames the self. Now, in every translation I've looked at, the, the, this is usually translated as the wise person trains himself. In other words, to use technical um, grammatical language, it makes the self a ref- himself a reflexive function of the verb rather than a direct object of the verb, which is the case in Pali. Atanam is in the accusative singular form, which means it's the direct ob- object of the verb dhammati, to tame, which is actually a cognate of the English word uh, itself. Dham, tem, it's the same word. What that then um, shows is how the object of the wise person's taming, in other words, the self, is equivalent to the field that is irrigated by the farmer, the arrow that is fashioned or constructed by the fletcher, the wood that is fashioned by the carpenter. Now, all of those three examples suggest that there is something one does that transforms the object of one's labor and one's work, and in different ways. Um, Again, I don't think the Buddha uses these examples just off the top of his head. He's comparing, therefore, the self to a field, to an arrow, and to a block of wood, each of which can be transformed through acting upon those things. It's an image of transformation. It's not an image of negation. The field of the farmer is made um, capable of producing produce, fruit, 
vegetables, whatever it's grown. And that is achieved by irrigation, by carving channels into the soil that enable water to nourish the ground, thereby enabling a crop to be produced. In what way are we like a field? And in what way does our, our practice somehow irrigate that field? As we practice mindfulness, as we practice concentration, as we practice inquiry and metta, and all of the things that we do, and remember we're very much concerned with doing something, we are in a way um, carving channels within our own being. We might nowadays prefer to think of that as um, firming up certain neural, neural pathways. It's the same idea. That the practice is one in which we, we dig a channel, metaphorically. Um, my teacher, Geshe Rabton, used to use this image. I I'm not aware that he knew this first. But he said that um, through practice, we open up channels within ourselves whereby that over time, that then becomes the more natural way in which we respond to things. The deepest channels perhaps carved into our neural pathways are those of greed and hatred, delusion, selfishness, which again is borne out when, how, when we see how readily and how automatically, how spontaneously, when confronted with pleasure or pain, that's the way we go. What we're doing in this practice is in some way irrigating our field and thereby transforming our responsiveness to situations so that we come over time, and it's not something that we do you know, in a, during a weekend retreat. Unfortunately, it takes a wee bit longer than that because we're dealing with very deeply seated uh, habit patterns which probably have their origins in our neurobiology. This is the work we do. In what way is the self like an arrow? This is a very different metaphor. It's an image of something that is, that, that is drawn together from different components. The shaft of the arrow, the point of the arrow, the feathers of the arrow. And likewise, we too are composed of multiple possibilities and skills and strengths, and the practice of the Dhamma, in many ways, is about a reconfiguring of those strengths and skills in such a way that our life becomes more focused, more directed. Again, the idea of an arrow that goes true is that it's a straight, true path to its target. And that too, I feel, is another way we can understand this process about directing and channeling and focusing our lives onto those uh, values that we most deeply respect and seek to embody. In what way is our self comparable to a piece of wood? Again, the five aggregates, our physicality, our feelings, our perceptions, 
are <clears throat> volitional and impulsive, reactive responsiveness to the world, our consciousness is in a way like an uncarved block of wood. And the practice is one in which we take that material, as perhaps a sculptor might or a carpenter, and we fashion it. We change ourselves, we adapt ourselves, we develop certain qualities, we learn things, and thereby we somehow become more learned, more understanding. We go through life living, hopefully, in an ethical and a moral way, thereby uh, likewise shaping and moulding and forming what we are. And all of uh, these metaphors are uh, images of ourself. What it doesn't mean is that there is a self, a kind of fixed, essential identity, as the Upanishads suggest, but rather there are a set of possibilities within this fluid, changing, contingent organism that can be molded and irrigated and configured and shaped in another way. So this is a selfless self, in other words, a self, an individual, a distinct person. There's no denial at all of our individuality. I would argue, in fact, that as we uh, evolve in our practice, we actually become more highly differentiated one from the other. We realize our potential as unique and individual persons. And again, I find it rather ironic that someone like, say, the Dalai Lama, who goes around the world talking about emptiness and selflessness and so on, is, in fact, through what he has done in his life, evolved into one of the most highly recognizable and differentiated individual persons. And to think that Buddhism is somehow about denying all of that is a great mistake. What we uh, therefore arrive at is not a process of either understanding the true self or somehow negating the self, but a middle way approach which we might describe following uh, a phrase used by Emerson as, uh, as creating a self, fashioning a self, evolving a self. But a self is only able to be fashioned or to evolve because there is no fixed essential thing that doesn't budge. We are more like perhaps a narrative or a story rather than a kind of fixed thing. Instinctively, we tend to congeal around this image or idea of being something apart, something disconnected from the contingent world. The more we realize that we are embedded within and are profoundly um, rooted and a part of this contingent world, then we have the possibility of transformation and change. And this is a, just another way, really, of speaking of what we were speaking of yesterday, Buddha nature, although I don't like that word. 
We also see how this notion of self, this selfless self, is um, reflected in the Buddha's critique of social um, status and social identity. And again, there's a, a very famous passage that we find in the Sutta Nipata and elsewhere. Oh, that's a text I forgot to put on the reading list. Um, the Sutta Nipata. Uh, Sutta, S-U-T-T-A. Nipata, N-I-P-A-T-A. Um, there's a couple of translations. And it might be up on accesstoinsight.org. That's a very, very interesting text because it's linguistically quite clear that it refers to a very early form of Pali. And it's the only sutta or collection of suttas that the Buddha himself in other suttas comments upon. So we have a verse in there which, which says, no one is born a Brahmin. A Brahmin is a Brahmin because of what he does. A farmer is a farmer because of what he does. And a craftsman a craftsman because of what he does. A merchant, a servant, a thief, a soldier, a priest or a king. Each of them is what he is because of what he does. Now, here um, we have both a, uh, a view of self, which um, in modern philosophical terms would be called a performative conception of self. In other words, you are what you do. You are not what you are by some sort of intrinsic standard of identity. So this is both an illumination of what the Buddha means by not-self, i.e. there is not some intrinsic Brahmin or farmer or merchant, but rather you have the capacity to become any of those things by virtue of what you do. In other words, your kama, your action, your intention, your choice to act and live in a certain way then comes to define your role in the society. So this is both, I think, psychologically acute in the understanding of the self as a fluid created um, uh, phenomenon, but it, of course also it is a radical uh, socio-political critique, critique of the established order of caste that prevailed in India at that time. So we have here an idea that is both um, inward, psychological, and also outward, social. The Buddha sought to um, envision a society, as we'll see, that sought to do away with all these distinctions, to create a sort of classless society, which in fact in India was never realized. In fact, the same problems the Buddha confronted two and a half thousand years ago are still bedeviling modern-day India as we speak. So all of this points to how the process the Buddha spoke of, whether it be that of self-creation, or world creation, um, is not premised on the idea of arriving at some kind of mystical state. But it is very much premised on the idea of a kind of unfolding. 
And so this is one of the reasons why I prefer the word awakening to enlightenment. Awakening, and again this is somewhat of a cheat because it's a, a, ha a happy circumstance of the ambiguity of the English. Awakening can suggest that it is a process of waking up. And that process is probably most clearly stated within the structure of the Eightfold Path. Um, in Mahayana Buddhism, we then get this doctrine of awakening as a process of threefold embodiment. I'm not going to go into that here, the doctrine of the three presences of the Buddha. But if we see, but I think we can find the basis of that idea, in other words, of awakening being a movement from interiority that the Buddha describes in that passage we looked at on the first day, to one in which that insight takes form in the public arena, in the first instance, in the park at Sarnath. And that one can only speak of him being a Buddha when he has articulated, given form to his ideas and his insights in a particular social and historical situation what is technically called nirmanakaya. But we see this process described very clearly in the way, in the sequence of the Eightfold Path. We start with a way of seeing things anew that allows us to think differently from that vision, which is the basis for how we then communicate in speech, how we embody those values in action, how they lead us to ways of life, livelihood, work, making use of resources to provide for ourselves. We can see this movement from interiority to embodiment in the world of social relations, of ethical responsibilities. We also, I feel, need to uh, dispense with this notion that um, uh, enlightenment or awakening is some kind of perfection. Again, this is, is very readily assumed on a reading of many of these classical texts when you have this endless uh, reiteration of the phrase um, when somebody becomes a, has an insight or an awakening, becomes a stream entrant or an arhant or something, there's a stock passage which says, and, um, and the defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion, are cut off like a palm stump, never to arise again. And this suggests very much that through a practice of the Dhamma, we get to a point where suddenly we have had the equivalent of a spiritual lobotomy. <laughs> that certain parts of ourselves, and if we understand greed, hatred and delusion are embedded in our reptilian brain, have somehow been um, cut off like a palm stump. Not only is that a very violent image, an image of literally excising something from our, our being, but it also, I feel, is increasingly unintelligible. 
There is, however, within the Pali tradition, in the early suttas, a whole other way of framing this metaphor of freedom. The question really is, what does it mean to be free from greed and hatred and delusion, to live a life that is no longer conditioned by those imperatives? Does it require that we somehow have to cut them off like a palm stump? Or can it refer to a way of being with them in a radically different manner? And that all of the teachings or discourses that concern the Buddha's interactions with Mara, the demonic, the devil, are basically premised on that model. In other words, Mara, the devil, is not something that is uprooted and destroyed in the moment of awakening. We mentioned this yesterday afternoon, that there's no mention whatsoever in the suttas of the conquest of Mara in this one grand heroic act that allows or precedes the awakening. That came along later. But there are plenty of episodes, dozens of episodes, in which the Buddha finds himself in dialogue with Mara. And what is striking is that these dialogues are not the preamble to his awakening, but they persist right through his life, right up until his death. Mara keeps popping up, saying, Hi, Buddha, guess what? (laughs) And this dialogue occurs, and each time that Um, this happens, well not each time, but in many of these occasions. The Buddha does not um, uh, somehow destroy Mara, but says, I know you, Mara. And on saying that, in recognizing the fact that he is known, sometimes Mara says, the Buddha knows me. And then he vanishes. But then he reappears in another moment. Now this, to me, is far more psychologically true of human experience. It also shows, albeit in mythic and symbolic language now, that even though the Buddha is the Buddha, Mara is still active. Mara is still around. The Buddha is the Buddha not because he has, he has, he has destroyed Mara, but because Mara is no longer able to have any power over him. Thereby, he is free from Mara. Just as we can be free from Mara in our better moments, when we are, let's say, sitting in meditation, we're aware of all the tumult and the turmoil and the the neurosis sort of pouring up into our minds, And we become more and more uh, uh, aware that we can be with that in in two very different ways. We can either get caught up in it and carried off by it, which does happen sometimes, or we can see it for what it is. So the practice of mindful attention or mindful awareness is opening up this still attentive space in which we can just be with what's happening 
And again, it reminds us perhaps of that passage with Malumkya Putta. In the scene, there is just the seeing. We see these things for what they are. They're the play of the mind. We don't have to identify with them. We don't have to let them run the show. And I feel the first glimpse experientially of the kind of uh, liberation or freedom of which the Buddha speaks is found in those moments when we, we suddenly find ourselves not reacting, but rather noticing what's going on and realizing that we are free not to grasp, to crave, to hate, to fear. But in doing so, we don't have to destroy these things. We can be with them in a radically different manner. And this is illustrated very, very beautifully in the Padana Sutta, which is also in the Sutta Nipata, this early collection, with the following analogy. Um, this is Mara speaking. He says, I followed the Buddha for seven years now, and I've watched every step he's made. That's the Buddha, remember, not uh, before the Enlightenment. And not once have I, have I had access to him who's completely awake and mindful. I remember once seeing a crow hovering above a lump of fat on the ground. Ah, food, it thought. But the lump, of, but the lump turned out to be a rock hard and inedible, and the crew flew away in disgust. We've had enough, says Mara. It's like that crow eating rock for us. We're going away. We're finished with Gautama. Mara was so upset by his failure that he dropped the guitar he was carrying it says lute, of course, which make, give, makes it sound nicely Shakespearean. It, it, the word is vena, stringed instrument. I visualize it as a sort of Fender Stratocaster. <laughs> <laughs> he dropped the Stratocaster he was carrying, and at the moment it fell to the ground, the evil-minded spirit disappeared. Now the image here, which I think is a very potent image, uh, of the crow and the rock. Um, the crow sees this thing on the ground that looks like a piece of food, and it goes, yeah, let's go for it. Pecks on it, can't gain any purchase. It's not a rock, so it flies away. What that means is that we're sitting there quietly in our mindful awareness of the breath, and a crow equivalent, let's say, fear, anxiety, greed, hatred, lust, whatever it is, uh, sort of spots us from afar and says, wow, food. And, <laughs> and in it flies. And sometimes, of course, it gets a pretty good meal. <laughs> but there are other times when it can't gain any purchase at all. We see it coming, we notice it arise, and then we notice it pass away. Now, sometimes my mind feels like a kind of landing strip for Mara. <laughs> a sort of heliport. <laughs> but there are moments in which um, 
I'm sufficiently still and aware to be with whatever goes on without being captivated, taken away, depressed, or overwhelmed by it. And I would hope that in the practice that we've been doing here this week, you have had moments like that. In other words, you've realized that that is actually possible. And also, just in the course of our lives, um, I think it's important to, to, to pay attention to those moments when, rather than react to the situation in our habitual way, we find ourselves responding to it in a non-habitual fashion. If one's working, say, um, with, um, with suffering people, or let's say a close friend who's in great pain comes to you, sometimes we find ourselves able to embrace the pain of the other and respond to it in ways that actually surprise us. We say, we think, where's that coming from? Those wise words, that capacity to reach out. And then the next day, similar situation, but we find ourselves incapable of doing anything but just uttering psychological or Buddhist platitudes. We're not really opening to or connected to that suffering. We're somehow cut off. We might still do the right thing, but we kind of know that we're faking it. It's a bit like that, I think. So this metaphor, and we find these metaphors with Mara uh, throughout the canon. Uh, there's another passage, um, this is in the Marjana somewhere, where the Buddha says that, um, uh, that he has blindfolded Mara. He's made himself invisible to Mara. He's not, not saying he's got rid of it, but he's no longer able to be affected by it. So the process of this path, if we, if, we, if we privilege these metaphors rather than the cut off like a palm stump metaphors, is, is really rather like um, learning to live with imperfection, learning to live with the devil, as, you, as we might say, rather than feeling that we need to, that we've only succeeded when we get to some place where all of these uh, problems just don't happen anymore. It seems in many ways that, that Buddha and Mara are always somehow together. In other words, awareness or mindfulness and that which seeks to undermine mindfulness, distraction or the hindrances and so on, kind of need each other. We need that friction, that tension, in order for... Um, path to unfold. Another feature I think we sh uh, that, that I've been exploring this week um, is to emphasize how this practice has to do with fully knowing the conditioned contingent world and resisting every temptation to posit or to believe in something that escapes the conditioned situation. 
whether that be God or one of God's many contemporary surrogates, like unconditioned mind, or whatever it might be. It seems that it, it seems so attractive uh, and so desirable to have some point of reference outside uh, the fluid, uh, fluctuating field of events. But I feel what the Buddha is doing that is perhaps the most radical part of his teaching is that he is departing from all such beliefs and consolations and views and embracing uh, uh, in an utterly open and uncompromising way um, the reality of the phenomenal world, of the conditioned world. And this is likewise um, a foundation, this view of, uh, of the Buddha's Dhamma that we've been unpacking this week um, is likewise laying the foundations not just for our own uh, personal um, evolution or development, but also it has social implications. Perhaps the most, um, uh, the most vivid image of this um, is that of the ocean. There's a passage, it's in the Udana, we also find it in the Vinaya, where the Buddha compares his Dhamma Vinaya, his teaching, his training, to an ocean. And there are eight metaphors. I'm just going to pick on a couple of them. He says, just as the great rivers of the world, in this case India, uh, pour into the ocean, and when they have entered the ocean, they lose their distinctions. In other words, the Ganges, the Yumana, the Brahmaputra. When they pour into the sea, they cease to be the Brahmaputra, the Ganges, the Yumana, and so on. They, they merge. Likewise, he says, um, when, the, when the classes of men, the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the merchants, the workers, in other words, remember in, in Indian society, these divinely ordained castes, these, um, the, these uh, fixed identities that are determined by God. In the Vedas, uh, in the story of creation, you have the, what, what is sometimes just called the One gives rise to what is called the Mahapurusha, the great person. And the great person then fragments into four parts. The head becomes the priest, the, the priestly caste, the, to, the torso, no, wait a minute, the arms become the ruling class, the warriors, the torso becomes the mercantile class, and the legs become the working class. And uh, this is the uh, underpinning of the Indian uh, conception of divinely ordained social position. We've already seen the Buddha critique that around his reflection on self. But now he's giving an image in which those class distinctions are dissolved within his Dhamma. One might like to think perhaps of that also as referring to uh, his Sangha, the community. And remember, when he uses the word Sangha, 
he's, he's not just talking of the monks and the nuns, which is unfortunately how it's often used today. We're going to go to the monastery and make an offering to the Sangha, meaning the monks. But the Buddha described his Sangha as fourfold. Monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen. That is how I feel the Sangha perhaps needs to be re-evaluated. It's not a privileged caste of monks and nuns, and then there's the rest of us. And there's ample evidence in the suttas of laymen, laywomen attaining the stream entry, becoming independent in, the, in their understanding of the dispensations. So this ocean is, I feel, an image of another kind of society that is possible. It prefigures perhaps some of the kind of egalitarian democratic societies we have now, and certainly it is a very strong hint of the kind of uh, ideal communist society envisioned by people like Marx. But the other, uh, another image of the ocean is that the ocean is permeated by the taste of salt. And in the same way, uh, the Dhamma is permeated by the taste of freedom. And again, often that metaphor is, 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 is utilized a lot. We've probably heard that. And it tends to suggest a kind of spiritual freedom, which is certainly part of it. But when you think of the ocean as the dissolution of class identity, it also seems to suggest a kind of social freedom. In other words, he seems to be envisaging a society of self-creating persons, as we've seen, um, who nonetheless are part of a wider whole community or society. And tho those core images, I think, can help us think what, in fact, Sangha is about. Sangha is not about belonging to a club where everybody has the same beliefs. But Sangha is arguably a supportive um, uh, network of relationships within which each individual supports the others in their own process of self-creation, of becoming what they can potentially become. It's not about conformity. It's not about what we often find in religious institutions, uh, towing a certain party line and not um, really being allowed to voice dissent. But rather, it is, in, it, it is a community held together by a common um, a set of values which each of us seeks to embody and realize in our own lives. So if we look at this now more concretely, um, in terms of, say, Buddhism, um, as, as it exists uh, in Asia and now in the West, it would seem to point um, to the possibility of the emergence of a new kind of culture, what might be called a culture of awakening. Um, and remember, the word culture is closely allied to the word cultivation, bhavana. So as we cultivate the Eightfold Path, which we can see is not just a 
internal process, but a, an ethical and a social uh, commitment. We are not just cultivating something within ourselves, but we're actually cultivating um, a community. And in doing so, we are giving rise to a culture. And I think that can be seen as happening particularly here in the United States. I think there is, in the last 20 or so years, the sense of a, an emergent Buddhist culture uh, not reducible to any specific Buddhist religious institution. And I don't feel that's happening to such an extent in Europe, where Buddhist groups still tend to, tend, tend to be territorial and suspicious of each other. But when I come to America, I find myself uh, participating with, uh, with, with friends and colleagues and peers who come from all different schools. And there's a sense, like when you, when you read some of, uh, say, tri Tricycle Magazine or something, that there's a kind of culture emerging. And that, I find, is a very positive development. Nonetheless, it's offset by competing religious institutions. And I'm not really terribly interested in Buddhism simply giving birth to more religious institutions and churches and so on. Particularly when the, um, the stated aims of such institutions are about preserving something, the preservation of the Dhamma. Uh, preservation is an interesting word. Um, if you think about it, you only preserve things that are already dead. <laughs> you preserve, you know, apples and apricots and things in brine. <clears throat> and one sometimes feels that that's what a lot of religious institutions are about. To help see through that problem, it's useful perhaps to turn the, uh, the to consider Buddhism itself in terms of the characteristics the Buddha emphasized um, that qualified all things, namely impermanent, dukkha, let's in this case say imperfect, unsatisfactory, painful, and selfless, lacking in any essential identity. Buddhism too is impermanent, it's dukkha, it's unsatisfactory, it's imperfect, it's flawed, and it is anatta. It does not have an intrinsic identity. It doesn't have anything within it, some core, that can be preserved in aspic. Buddhism, too, is a process. And this is, is abundantly clear when we uh, consider the history of Buddhism. Again, Buddhist uh, traditions have not given much attention to Buddhism itself as an instance of conditioned arising and dependent origination. In fact, historical consciousness, which is really very much a feature of the, uh, of the Western tradition, starting with the Greeks and then really coming to its own after the European Enlightenment, in understanding all cultural and religious products as the consequence of different conditions. So if 
to a Western audience, I say, what's the difference between, why is Tibetan Buddhism so different from Japanese Buddhism? Our knee-jerk answer is, well, that's obvious, because Tibet is a very different situation to Japan. That might be obvious to us, but I can tell you it's not obvious to many uh, of my uh, traditional Tibetan and other teachers who would say, well, the difference is it's because we have the true Dharma and they don't. <laughs> so I think it's, it's again, be behoves us uh, as those who are um, in some way committing ourselves or are seeking to valorize uh, these uh, practices, these teachings, these ideas, um, to apply them likewise to the institutions and the forms that, um, in which these ideas are found. Uh, Buddhism, to me, has survived through um, history, through for two and a half thousand years, not because it's managed to preserve something unchanged and unaffected by uh, the historical and social, political, economic conditions of, of the world, but because it has succeeded in many uh, 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 times and places to reimagine itself, to reinvent itself. Buddhism is not a finished product, but it is an ongoing um, uh, experiment. It's an ongoing process of imaginative self creation and self-development. But religious institutions tend to be institutions in which the power of a certain body of people um, is based. We cannot, um, unfortunately, um, evolve uh, structures and <clears throat> communities and institutions in this world uh, without being drawn into issues of power. And I think it's naive and idealistic to assume that one can avoid that. And one of the um, doctrines that I feel underpins um, the hierarchies of power in Buddhist institutions is the doctrine of the two truths, the absolute truth and the relative truth. A distinction, remember, the Buddha never made. Once you've split reality in that way, and again, of course, Buddhist philosophers have you know, spent a lot of time trying to resolve the implicit duality. They're not really two truths. They're one, but they're kind of conventionally different. In terms of power politics, they, this doctrine provides a very uh, convenient distinction between those who are enlightened, those who have privileged access to some ultimate truth and the rest of us who don't. I was in a Zen center last year and I participated in a, a ceremony in which the precepts were recited and the precept recitation went something like this. Ultimately there is no killing but I vow not to kill. Ultimately there is no stealing but I vow not to steal and so on. Now this, I feel, is a rather dangerous move. It's basically saying someone who's enlightened, someone who has gained privileged access into some ultimate truth, is somehow beyond the constraints of morality. 
They're acting from a position beyond that of good and evil. They've transcended the dichotomies of the world. And again, this goes back, I think, and is usually reinforced by some claim of, of, of having accessed some transcendent truth. And we've seen, I think, only too many examples of different kinds of uh, morally questionable behavior premised on the fact that a person is enlightened. I was read, I'm reading a book by Richard Rorty at the moment called Philosophy and Social Hope, which I would recommend. It's a collection of essays, and he talks very much about uh, the American philosopher John Dewey. And this is a passage. John Dewey saw all the baneful dualisms of the philosophical tradition, and by that he means the distinction between reality and appearance, between essence an accident between mind and body. He saw all these as remnants of the social divisions between contemplators and doers, between a leisure class and a productive class. Um, I found that very uh, helpful uh, because you see exactly that dichotomy within uh, uh, particularly those Buddhist uh, societies that are feudally based, where you have the, uh, and this is particularly true in Tibet and Japan, um, where you have a clear-cut distinction between uh, the contemplatives, those who lead a life of leisure, who dwell upon the eternal verities and transcend the concerns of the world, as opposed to the unenlightened masses who are um, mired in ignorance and confusion, who, whose only hope is to get a better rebirth by, strangely enough, working for the contemplative classes. Um, and that model of um, those models of religious institutions, um, I feel in many ways are quite antithetical to the whole uh, democratic um, values that underpin um, American society. So, just to, to wind up, uh, the, we have this wonderful injunction that I've already cited, but I'll cite it again, of the Buddha's vision of what the, the practitioner, in this case the monk, um, what is the, the purpose of that person's life in the social sense? He says, Wander forth, O monks, for the welfare of the multitude, for the happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and happiness of gods and men. And let no two go the same way. Uh, he seems to be suggesting almost a kind of nomadic spirituality one in which one would gather together with like-minded people um, for certain periods during the year. At the Buddha's time, that would have been the monsoon. But otherwise, one should go forth into the world and bring these values, embody these values in your interactions with others. And there needs to be this kind of dialectic between periods of quiet and contemplation, reflection, meditation, and then 
at least in the classical Indian model, uh, nine months of the year in which you wander within the world. Likewise, if we suspend or bracket, as I've been suggesting, the, uh, the Upanishadic soteriology, in other words, the notion that everything has to do with multiple rebirths and escaping from the cycle of birth and death and being driven by invisible powers of karma from past lives. Once we bracket all of that, we open up the possibility of seeing this Dhamma in a purely secular sense. And by secular, I mean the word quite literally to do with this age and this time. And in other words, to give us one's priority the uh, suffering of this world and this planet. As far as we know, there has never been a comparable world ever before in this universe, and there may never be another one. Statistically, there probably are some distant solar system. But this is all we really know for sure, that we're in this world and beings suffer. Uh, I think it says in one of the Gospels, sufficient unto the day is the suffering thereof. Which is, again, it's a call to, to be here, to be now, to be with this and this, the actual conditions of life as they are unfolding. As long as we hold a view that all beings will be reborn according to their karma in some other realm or dimension, effectively we undermine any uh, genuine possibility of an engaged Buddhism. Because even if the world goes up in a nuclear holocaust or th through environmental poisoning, it doesn't really matter. Of course, it's an object of great um, suffering. We have great compassion and love for the people who are experiencing that suffering. But in the end, they just get born in a, another equally suitable environment to play out their karmic destiny. But if we focus, as I feel we should, the entirety of our wisdom and our compassion on the uh, immediate and present conditions of life on earth. I think also, paradoxically, if there is rebirth, we'll be doing the best possible thing we can to prepare for it, rather than feeling that our life is only meaningful if we are somehow considering the big picture of multiple lifetimes over and above the immediate concerns of the here and now. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, we'll have a shorter discussion, as I said. The program is up for this afternoon, and um, we'll continue um, at 3 o'clock, or 2.30 with the guided meditation. Oh, it's going to be a silent meditation at 2.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.